Hello there. Welcome to the podcast that we call Frenchie, a show dedicated to the stories and legacies of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. I'm your host, Jason Terrier. For 20 years, I've been interviewing World War II veterans and capturing their personal stories. Many of these veterans, natives of the Bayou Country in South Louisiana, were Cajuns, people of Acadian descent. Like their forebears, these Cajuns grew up speaking French as their first language. But unlike generations before, these Cajuns experienced a tidal wave of ridicule for speaking French and an Americanization process that sought to do away with this so-called backcountry language and culture, a shift in attitudes by society in general and by the Cajuns themselves, tended to view the French-Cajun language as a handicap and the people who spoke it as low-class citizens. Cajun boys and girls who spoke French at school were often punished, and many grew up ashamed of their language and culture. But all that changed in the 1940s when these same Cajuns left home and discovered, on the one hand, a world completely different from their own, but on the other hand, a world uniquely similar to theirs. When the Cajuns arrived in French-dominated territories like North Africa and Europe, their ability to speak French proved invaluable to military operations, and it had a profound impact on their sense of a Cajun identity. What emerged from this unique wartime experience was a long-lost pride in their heritage. When the Army needed bilingual interpreters, they called on Frenchie to bridge the language gap. First up on our podcast is General Bob LeBlanc, one of Louisiana's most decorated military heroes and one of the last surviving members of the original Office of Strategic Services. As a side note, Bob LeBlanc was interviewed on three separate occasions, first in 2003, then in 2006, and most recently in 2020. All three interviews utilized different forms of recording media in the field. Although these recordings have been digitally remastered by the Center for Louisiana Studies, the sound quality on this podcast may not be uniform. The additional voices you will occasionally hear are the two interviewers, myself and Hewitt Terrio, a World War II veteran from Terrebonne Parish. We begin our story at Fort McClellan, Alabama, in the fall of 1943, when Lieutenant LeBlanc found himself in a unique situation with a unique opportunity. Growing up in a French-speaking Cajun town, LeBlanc, like so many others, had a special talent. His ability to not only speak the language, but to read and write it, gave him distinct advantages in the military. Prior to the age of computers, the Army used what was called Farm 66 to keep track of a soldier's specialty skills. With LeBlanc's unique language qualifications, he was a prime candidate for the Army's new clandestine organization called the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS. While at Fort McClellan, LeBlanc was approached by a recruiter from this top-secret organization. There was some recruiter that came down from OSS and gave us a call on everybody who knew how to speak a foreign, speak, read, and write a foreign language. They called us to the headquarters, and they interviewed us individually. And all they said was, uh, do, you, uh, do you want to volunteer for a strenuous and mission that we can't tell you about? I said, well, tell me more about it. They said, we can't tell you other than the fact that we need your knowledge 
and uh, you must be willing to parachute and all of this good stuff. And I said, well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm at the mercy of Uncle Sam, so whatever is I can do best, I'll be glad to do. And about a month later, they called me to, they called me to Washington. For six months, he and hundreds of other recruits underwent intense Special Forces training to prepare them for the special missions that lay ahead. This was America's first official spy organization, and at the age of 23, Bob LeBlanc was a part of it. So in D.C., we went through, uh, we went through uh, all types of training, all the weapons, foreign weapons, French, additional French classes, primarily uh, the classes in knowing the mores of the French. For instance, a Frenchman does not eat his gumbo or soup like we eat it. He doesn't lift this side of the plate. He lifts this side of the plate. See? Wow, that's the way to tell. That's the way they would tell. A, a, a Frenchman doesn't do like an American and smoke his cigarette, and about that much cigarette left, he throws it away. A Frenchman will take a toothpick if necessary and smoke it down till the end. And that's the way, that, that's some of the techniques that they taught you to avoid being captured by the Germans, you see. Right. Uh, your hands, if you smoke, should be brown. Mm-hmm. All of the stains on it. Your teeth should be brown. You shouldn't brush your teeth too, too, too much to get that stain <laughs> off. But these are the types, and then they taught us Morse code. They taught us all the different types of radios we utilized. LeBlanc certainly had the background necessary to serve and excel in this unique role. At the age of 16, he entered civilian military training school at Camp Beauregard in northern Louisiana. He went to college at LSU under the ROTC program and later, as a commissioned officer in the Army, completed several rounds of basic training, including a stint at the United States Censorship School where he learned to decipher bail written in French from overseas. Perhaps his most valuable asset was his bilingual abilities. Growing up as a French-speaking Cajun certainly had its advantages. But for many, the ridicule, discrimination, and English-only policy in schools left indelible scars on the Cajun psyche and their sense of identity. Nevertheless, in June 1944, as Allied forces invaded the Normandy coast, it became apparent that French-speaking American soldiers would be needed to communicate with the Free French resistance. Bob LeBlanc, who grew up in a sleepy French-speaking town in South Louisiana, found himself at the forefront of General Patton's Third Army, sneaking behind enemy lines in search of these undercover French resistance leaders. Uh. I was fortunate enough to be chosen for Patton's headquarters. My, my, my team and my, my detachment, Special Forces Detachment Number 11, was assigned to Patton's headquarters in England before the invasion. Well, then, when we did this, they, they didn't send us to Jump Street because there was no need, and they needed us immediately to, to do this other function. So we did this, and we trained for uh, the invasion, not the invasion, but post-invasion from when we were employed. But primarily what we were doing was sending messages back and forth 
to fool the enemy as to, as to where we were going to land in France. LeBlanc and his small detachment came ashore at Utah Beach on July the 17th to begin their operations to track down agents of the French underground. Having the ability to speak French was paramount to his mission and to his survival. In this next segment, LeBlanc, a Cajun from the prairie country of southwest Louisiana, converses with Hugh Terrio, a Cajun from the bayou country in southeast Louisiana, about LeBlanc's first encounter with the French in Normandy. Tell us, dis-nous, s'il vous plaît, la première fois que vous avez fait connaissance avec un Français. Vous êtes approché, il savait que vous étiez avec les États-Unis ou comment La première fois que j'ai causé avec un Français, c'était après on était à le headquarters dans l'Apple Orchard. Mon colonel m'a demandé, il dit, euh, tu ne peux pas nous trouver du Calvados. Vous connaissez quoi c'est du Calvados? Cognac? Cemetery. Okay. But in, were you in Normandy? No, no, I, I was in the Pacific. Okay. I never... Uh, Normandy was noted for Calvados. Calvados is a liquid? It's yeah. a liquid. It's, uh, it's uh, sort of a brand new apple, apple and peach concoction. And uh, I said, yeah, I can... Which true as So uh, I went to to a, a French farmer nearby, and he uh, started speaking in French to him. And he was that français? He no. He's American. But pourquoi vous causez français comme vous causez français? Why do you speak French the way you do? La raison c'est bien, bien, bien simple. Je ne connaissais pas comment parler en anglais jusqu'à j'avais 5 ans. C'est simple parce que je ne savais pas parler anglais jusqu'à j'avais 5 ans. C'est pourquoi il parlait français. En tout cas, nous avons parlé et il a dit ce qu'il voulait. Il a dit Well, il a dit que c'est difficile de trouver. Je lui ai dit Bien. I told my driver in English, I said, go get me a carton of cigarette. <laughs> That's good. And uh, so he came with the carton, and I pulled out a pack, and I handed him a cigarette, and I lit up a cigarette, and I said, now, nah, you know what, that's some Calvados. He says, uh, we was ever get charged with a method down. You have something to put it in. I said, yeah, I got a water can out there. Combien ça vaut? How much is it worth? I said, well, le can is cinq gallons. I said, a peu six liters. Six liters, you see. You do, you done cut pocket cigarettes. So he said, Domola, give me the uh, container. And that bastard had it 
you know. He, he had it down in his cellar, you see. So he, I got the five gallons of, uh, of Calvados, and I went back to the headquarters, and uh, the, the major says, well, why didn't you bring us some brief cheese? I says, uh, brief. Brie cheese is brie is right in this area, you see. Very and they make they make cheese. The monks make cheese there. I says, uh, well, you didn't tell me nothing about the cheese. I said, give me some, give me some, some money because now I'm got to deal with some Catholic monks. <laughs> so you got some monks. See, so I went down there and I started talking Christian them, and uh, I wanted some brie cheese. You see. I mean it. I mean it. And he brought out a box full of it. And I asked him how much it was, and I gave him the money. And uh, I reached, I told the driver, I said, give him four cartons of cigarettes. Four packs of cigarettes. He wanted to give me back the money. I said, no, 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 no. I said, you keep the money. I said, I just want to make sure when I come back here, you're going to have some more cheap price. N'importe qui ton voulez. Any time you come back, I have to do it. So that's, uh, that uh, was the first encounter I had with the, the French in that area. Once LeBlanc and his team got off the Normandy beachhead and advanced deeper into enemy-occupied territory, they moved swiftly but carefully across the countryside, searching for the leaders of the various resistance groups to share vital intelligence and to coordinate efforts against the Germans. All along here, uh, the primary mission we gave to the French underground, as we got to each town, the Germans had removed all the signs on the roads. So uh, all we had was these maps, Michelin maps. We had no topographical maps. Uh, we, could, we could more or less tell by the direction, but there were so many roads, it was hard to identify each road. So we got the French underground to provide guides to guide us from town to town. We, get, we got the French underground to provide guards for our supply line. We got the French underground to uh, provide guards for the prisoners, which they really enjoyed. Sometimes they didn't end up back up at the cage, but uh, yeah. they, they took them off. You know, that was interesting. These these people that you were recruiting had to be uh, had to be secret agents themselves. No, no, we knew we knew. Let, let me tell you how this worked. When we left this area up here at Perrier, I had the names of every agent all the way to Rand wow. in that area. Now, who had provided you? You had headquarters. Yeah, headquarters did that. Intelligence. They briefed us on every agent where he was, what what was his code name, where he could be found, and in addition as to how do you contact him? Well, you walk into a bar, you know, and you, uh, you look around, and it's, uh, the unusual is safe. The usual is not safe. In other words, if you were an agent and I was to go to a certain uh, bar or a hotel, and I walked in, and everybody had their collar up, or one or two had their collars up, which is not normal. You didn't ask any questions. But if it looked normal, you might ask, where where can I buy a certain item? And he'd say, uh, he'd have a counter 
kind of clause of uh, what type do you want, and then if you would say, well, I want I want a certain type of P38 pistol, well, then he'd say, then he'd welcome you and he'd go get the underground leader for that particular. Comment ça, Monsieur? Vous êtes français? You know, how are you? Mr. Right. So yeah. if the guys had the I'll say they had a if there had anything that unusual about them, that means that yeah. there was somebody in there that didn't want to talk. You, they didn't tell you I don't want to talk because that would have killed them right. immediately. You might have been a German. Might have been a German in the other corner shooting forward. Uh, you had you had to understand that uh, that was one of the things they had taught us is that uh, you always observe the area you're in or the building you're in. And if everything is normal, uh, it's not safe to talk. Hmm. The priest had a radio, and what you do is you'd open up the little box, the little suitcase, and you'd string the wire around your motel room or your hotel room, see, so that, uh, and then you sent your message and you cut out, get off the air, because you're ready with that direction finders that the Germans could have been for you right now. So you only send one message in a location, and then you move to another one. And London would answer you 30 minutes later. You see, you had a schedule as to when you'd call in and when you would uh, uh, receive. Yeah, but what we did, what we did, is what they did over there in Iraq. We followed the supply column. You see, when you went back, you always got together with the empty trucks going back to get the fuel because they had a guard with them. All through, from the time we left up here. We were so far ahead of the army that we all, we had to send back the supplies. They always sent back some recon with them and some troops with them, and that's how we went back and forth. But when we crossed the line itself into this area to go, there was no no nobody with us. I left the radio jeep with the unit, and then I crossed the line with the French underground Walking guide on foot, on foot or in the At jeep night. or in the jeep. In the jeep, you could go around the back, all over, the, all over this area. You could go anywhere in the jeep, in the back roads, and the French knew which way to go. Did you ever run into any uh, problems? Yeah, we had a few problems. We had a few problems. We, we took care of matters. LeBlanc wasn't the only Cajun who served in the OSS. There may have been as many as 50 from South Louisiana who served in some capacity in this secret organization. We pick up the story from here with an interview from General LeBlanc from February 2020, nearly 17 years after his first recorded interview. We had quite a few Cajuns and OSS, Cajun French, but they also had some other French in there, which was different French. But the Parisian, the, 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 the Cajun French didn't have any trouble and OSS, because they always had a location they could send them in and do their business. And it worked perfectly. Whenever they would say, the unit will move, is it going to move and attack this, this direction? And we knew what we had to do to get the French to support the event that was going to go on. And that's what we did. And we did that by talking to the underground and giving them some, something to do 
when the Americans were attacking. Maybe it was attacking with the Americans, or maybe it was defending a certain area, a bridge, or, or something like that. But, but it was an interesting thing. I was fortunate I got in the area of France where the French were very eager to talk to the Americans and very eager to help the Americans. And uh, so I was able to do a lot of things with them and uh, I never had any incident where they refused. Mm -hmm. and, and it was something that you would never forget mm -hmm. when you got your life on the line. And that's what it is. You, you Frenchmen stuck, stuck in a foreign country you don't know whether those Frenchmen are going to kill you or whether they're going to help you. Mm -hmm. And it depends how, how you talk to them, what they're going to do. Because the French, when they, we first went in ashore, there were different areas of, of France. And if they would like you, they supported you 100%. If they didn't like you, they, they, didn't, they didn't try to hurt you, but they didn't support you like they supported us. Because when we needed help, we knew who to talk to, and they would help us. As LeBlanc and his team trekked across France ahead of General Patton's forces, he had numerous encounters with the French people. And all they wanted to know was how an American soldier came to speak the French language so well. They asked me where I learned French, and I'd tell them, Ma grand and my grandpa, ça parle français. Ça fait, il fallait, moi j'apprends comment parler français. I learned how to speak French because my grandma and grandpa didn't know how to speak English. And my father and mother insisted I learn how to speak French to be able to talk to grandma and grandpa. For the American military commanders on the ground, having GIs nearby with the capacity to speak the native language to the local people became invaluable. Throughout the ranks, that fella came to be known as Frenchy, and he was typically a Cajun from South Louisiana. In France, Frenchy was an extremely important and popular soldier to have around. They were always, when, when they arrived in France, you had these units that had nobody who knew how to speak French. And they would, they would want to do something, and they couldn't get it done because they couldn't know, didn't know how, how to speak French. I said, well, just ask where French is. And what, somebody going to show up? And they did. They, they did that. French was the person who could talk to the French people and get something done. And they always were able to get something done, but it was not necessarily done when the Americans were trying to get through there. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't get through there because they didn't have anybody who could speak French and talk to the French. And the French would get out the way mm -hmm. of the event that was going on, which was an invasion. Mm -hmm. And once they knew 
we knew how to speak French. They listened. Mm -hmm. They not only listened, they helped. And I mean helped. Mm -hmm. Because Americans and the invasion could invade, but not be able to speak to local people who could also help them invade mm. and have them move through through a big section of France, the entrance of France. And that worked out beautifully once they, they would let the Frenchmen take over certain areas. All they knew was that the, there were Cajuns, mm -hmm. and uh, all they knew was that the, there were people who knew how to speak French. Mm -hmm. And they were damn glad they knew how to speak French because they didn't know nothing about French. Mm -hmm. And they didn't know nothing about France. So they needed somebody that could tell them what, what was going on in that area. With the ability to speak French, these Cajun GIs had broken a language barrier between allies. For the first time in the group's long history, their Cajun French language became not one of ridicule, but one of value and demand. The Cajuns' untarnished regional dialect from centuries past delighted the local French people and provided nearly perfect liaisons between American officers and the leaders of the French underground. Other Cajuns spoke about this link to a cultural past. Lloyd Bayroyd, who befriended a French family overseas, said in a 2004 interview, I always tried to speak real French while I was in France, but when I got excited, I spoke like we speak in Coda Homes, which is the ancient French. This old man and his wife spoke the same way. Our French hasn't changed much over the years, he said. Writing home in 1944, Thomas Durion wrote, My French is more correct than most of the dialects I heard in Normandy and Brittany. Rita Durwall, writing from France during the war, said, my knowledge of French is helping me considerably, not only in my work, but also with meeting French civilians. In the rural areas, it was very similar to always. I mean, you could speak them, and you'd swear you were speaking to a Frenchman from Louisiana, <laughs> because they, they would speak that type of French. And We'd speak the same French. The Cajuns of South Louisiana, who had come of age during World War II, had the unique opportunity to showcase their talents on the world stage. Up until then, neither the Cajuns nor their detractors thought highly of their language abilities. For decades leading up to the war, Cajun French was considered a backward language, with little value outside of the Cajun communities in South Louisiana. In this 2006 interview, Bob LeBlanc explains how the war experience changed these attitudes. In both places, it seems as though people had the idea that we Cajuns in South Louisiana was, were from a different country huh. because uh, they treated us as though we were peasants. Uh, we were the ignoramus boys from the swamps and that uh, we didn't know too much about life. However, in the competitive nature of the military, it, it became necessary for us to demonstrate to these people outside of this area 
that we were very competent Americans who could definitely do anything they could do. Even though our English was not the best English in the world, uh -huh. we could still accomplish everything they could accomplish, and then some. When we got to OSS in, in training in uh, Washington, D.C., there were a lot from the Ivory Colleges, Ivy League Colleges in the United States, who were in OSS from California and from the New England states, whose English was impeccable. However, their knowledge of French and the ability to speak the French language was not all that it was up thought to be. Uh -huh. And guys like Trumps, myself, Roy Armentor, and Galley were able to prove that we were better equipped to deal with the French than a lot of these other individuals were. Uh -huh. And throughout the war, it became a common knowledge, especially in France, that if you wanted somebody to communicate with the French people or the French army, find yourself a Frenchie from Louisiana. <laughs> and that would help you tremendously in accomplishing your mission. So we began to feel that we were not the back hindquarter boys, that we did that, that our self-evaluation of ourselves came to the point that we thought we were as good as anybody else. And a lot of the Louisiana boys who went into the service developed the attitude that they could do anything anybody else could do. Uh -huh. And they proved it. And, and that's basically what I gained throughout, throughout my tour and on active duty in World War II, that when a Frenchman put his mind to doing something, an Acadian Frenchman, he gets it accomplished. This concludes our first episode of the Frenchie Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. Stay tuned for more stories with the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. These interviews are part of the Jason Terrio World War II Oral History Collection, housed at the Center for Louisiana Studies on the campus of UL and Lafayette. To listen to the full, unedited versions of more than 150 of these interviews, visit the Center for more. Music provided by Josh Caffrey and Chris Segura. Audio engineering and editing done by Chris Segura. This production was made possible by a rebirth grant from the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities.